For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, so we've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians. This is a, one of the letters in the New Testament written 2,000 years ago from a guy named Paul to a group of pretty new Christians in the Greek city of Corinth. Corinth was a huge city. Um, it, was known f- it was very wealthy. It was known for its partying. It was known for its sex. Tons of temples. We each had sex priestesses. At one time, they had a temple up on the hill, the Acro Corinth, that had a 1,000 priestess prostitutes. And a lot of sailors coming through here. Very, it's a common place for sailors to come through to drag their boats from one side of the isthmus to the other. And so this was a, it was a group that had a lot of problems. Instead of thinking like Christians, they were still thinking like Corinthians. That's what we've been seeing. They need God's wisdom. And we've seen they've got problems in a number of different areas. The last couple of weeks, we've been seeing how God's wisdom applies to these different areas. We've studied their factions, their incest problems, their lawsuits that they had amongst one another. This week, we're going to move on to their prostitute problem and really a bigger discussion about their faulty view of sex. <clears throat> Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 6. What were the Corinthians saying? Paul says, you know, you guys are saying I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. He says, you're saying I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Yeah, so one of the problems, one of the, the, the things that were circulating there in Corinth is people were like, well, because God has forgiven me, his grace means I can do whatever I want. And so they were visiting these, prostis, these prostitutes, probably the temple prostitutes, but just plain old prostitutes as well. Um, so that was one problem they were having, misunderstanding of God's grace. The other problem was they believed that sex is only a physical act, as it says in 1 Corinthians six thirteen. Paul says, you're also saying food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. So they're like, well, you know, I mean, um, sex, it's really just uh, a physical appetite that we have, you know, like... God, you know, gave us stomachs, and you know, if you're hungry, you should go get some food. It doesn't really matter what kind. There's really no moral content to food. Take whatever kind of food you prefer and put it in your mouth, and it'll go down into your stomach. And the logic was, well, sex is sort of the same way. If you're feeling like having sex, if you're feeling sexual desire, well, God gave us sexual organs just like he gave us a stomach. And so, you know, if you're hungry for sex, you go and you find someone, something that you can have sex with, whatever your preference is, it doesn't really matter. Just do that. And, um, you know, ultimately, God's going to destroy the body anyway. And so it really doesn't even matter that much what I do with my body. Because what matters is the spirit. Some of them taught sort of a dualism, a separation between body and spirit. And so these were the lies circulating around the city of Corinth, and what Paul is saying is, obviously, you guys do not understand what sex even is, the fact that you're saying these things. He says, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? There's a unity that's happening here every time you have sex with somebody else. You're uniting yourself with a prostitute. You're becoming one with a prostitute. He says, the scriptures say the two will become one flesh. 
So Paul says, I know you guys are saying all things are permissible for me, and you guys are saying, well, food for the body, food for the stomach is stomach for food. He says, have you thought to think about what God says about this area? You know, sexuality, it's not like, what's the latest poll say about what the Corinthians think about sex? That's not what matters. What matters is what God thinks about this subject. And what the scriptures say is the two become one. Paul says it three different ways. You're uniting yourself with the prostitute. You're becoming one with her in body. And he says, just like the scriptures say, the two become one. The Corinthians obviously did not understand the power of this bond that is formed through sex. They did not understand this. This is a powerful bond. That's why he says in verse 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. And that word, pornea, that's where we get our word porno, pornography, pornographic. Um, That word, it would include sexual intercourse. It would include other forms of sexual contact as well. Uh, It could probably extend in some cases as far as things like pornography and whatnot. That would be lesser forms of pornea. Adultery, of course, would be right out of the picture, but it's, it's a broad term. Flee from sexual immorality. He says, run away from this. You know, flee, that's like the kind of word you'd use when you're like fleeing a burning building or fleeing an axe murderer. Paul says, this is, this, you, the way you're using this is so damaging. He says, you need to run from this. All the sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And so he says, yeah, there's a lot of different types of sin, but not all types of sin are equal in the amount of damage that they do. And he says, compared to sexual sin, compared to misuse of sex, every other sin, it's it's like a surface level impact. But he says, because of the profound soul and spiritual unity that comes when a sexual bond is forged, he says that's like the difference between sin kind of deflecting off the surface and a sin that goes right to the heart, right to the core of who you are. They did not understand this. There's incredible power at stake here. And you know, this, this, this passage that Paul cites, the two become one flesh, this is the passage that's most commonly cited when talking about sexuality. In fact, Jesus, one day, people asked him some questions about sex and marriage. And where does he turn? He turns to the same place that Paul turned, Genesis chapter 2. Check out what Jesus says about this subject in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. Jesus says, how many of you read that at the beginning... The creator made them male and female. So from the very beginning of humanity, we see gender, God's will, male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. There's that unity that Paul was talking about there, the same verse that he quoted. And he says, the two will become one flesh. He says, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate it. So he says this like four or five different ways in a verse and a half. The two become one, and God has joined it. And don't take apart when God joins something together. Incredible power that God has given for unity through sex. I think it's a power we we underestimate. We don't think about too much. And so what Jesus is teaching here is that marriage is not a social construct subject to revision. You know, people will change in their views of sex and marriage over the years. But Jesus says from the beginning, this is the way God set this up, and that has not changed one bit. He doesn't care what the latest poll says on the subject. 
He also says God designed sex to be practiced within biblical marriage. And you can see what he's saying here. Biblical marriage, what features does he give of it? Well, for one, it's monogamous. Not a man will be joined to his wives or a woman to her husbands, but it's singular, one husband, one wife. It's heterosexual. He says a man will be joined to his wife. And also, it's a lifelong commitment. He says what God has joined together, let no one separate. And so we don't go in thinking, well, this doesn't work. I'll just try it again with somebody else. No, it's something that's a lifelong commitment. And marriage is the only safe place for something as powerful as sex. What we're dealing with here, the joining at a deep level of souls, that's not something where you just want to kind of join and rip away and join and rip away like if you've ever been out on a cold day and somebody dared you to lick up something metal. I did that once. You've seen the movie Christmas Story. The dude does it in that as well. Um, there's a bond that happens, and it's painful. It's, it's, it's real painful to rip that off. And what, what he's saying is marriage, is, it can be a power for good, but can also do a lot of damage as well. You think about something like nuclear power. You know, if I had like something that could, could perform nuclear fusion, I wouldn't just go around just kind of tinkering around with it. Because I know that's an incredible power that I would be unleashing there. You don't just go fusing nuclei willy-nilly. <laughs> and, you know, a disaster in this area can, can do a lot of damage for many years when it comes to nuclear power. But it can, be, it can be really good as well. And so that's what God's saying about sex, is he's saying, look, it, it's powerful for good or for harm, and you need to look at the one who designed it and let him tell us how to use this really powerful feature of who we are. And so the Corinthians, they did not understand this point. What were they saying? They were saying, well, sex is just a physical act. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. God will destroy them both. Well, under this view, sex is no different than eating a cheeseburger. You're hungry, it's late, you're like, well, I'll make a run out to uh, Taco Bell, get myself a chalupa. <laughs> you know, that's what Taco Bell's there for. <laughs> you go and you satisfy that hunger. Or, you know, you're like, man, I feel like playing some basketball. You go down to the courts and you try to just find, find somebody to play a pickup game with. You're like, doesn't really matter who it is. I'm not building, this is not some life commitment here. I just want to play, you know, some hoops. Well, this says, well, if you want to have some sex, you go down, you find a place where people are looking for the same thing, and you hook up, and then you move on. You know, using the restroom, I, you know, blowing my nose. You know, I just, I, I'm feeling like a sneeze coming on, and I, I need to quick, I need a tissue, so I, I have something to sneeze into. I need to be able to blow my nose. And sex, under this view, just a physical act, what is the difference? It's reducing it to something at the most crass level. This is so far below what God intended for sex that is just a physical act. And that's why Paul goes on to explain the thing about, no, it's not. He says, this is the joining of, of, of souls, humans made in the image of God. Man, did their culture buy into this view that the Corinthians were holding. This was not a view that was just confined to Corinth. 
For example, just a, a few centuries earlier than this, Demosthenes, the Greek author, here's what he says about the Greek sexual practices. He says, we keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day -day bodily needs, but we have wives to produce legitimate children and serve as trustworthy guardians of our homes. So he's like, you know, you need several different types of women in your life. You know, you need the wife, you need the, the dowry, the respectable, you know, lineage, the children, someone to raise the, the keep the home, raise the family. Um, you know, your mistress, this would be like the person who, this was your sexual playmate, this is the person who was intellectually stimulating to you. And of course, you've got to have your concubines, maybe slaves you'd keep around uh, for other sexual needs. And what Paul is saying is, look guys, the mother of your children, the person you love having sex with, the person you love talking to, he says, what God wants is for that to all be the same person. And they were like, whoa, that's crazy. Can you believe what he's saying? And I, I, I doubt it's that they didn't want that. I think they, they, like a lot of people today, had sort of given up hope that that could be the case. That I could have a lifelong partner, my partner in raising a family, someone I love talking to, someone I love that we have a growing sexual relationship, one that gets better every year of our marriage, which is possible in a Christian marriage, that that, can, that, that is truly possible. A lot of people have just given up hope on that. I see a lot of despair. Their culture wasn't the only one that had bought into this view. Our culture has too. Mark Regneris, sociology prof at the University of Texas, has done a lot of research, a lot of writing in this area. Um, his book, Premarital Sex, from 2010, he says, in December of 06, researchers from the Guttmacher Institute released a report about the historic and contemporary prevalence of premarital sex. And they received an avalanche of media attention for their news. About 95% of the American public had their first experience of sexual intercourse before they got married. So we're 1 in 20. 19 out of 20 is sexually active before marriage. His book, um, Cheap Sex, just released a few months ago. Really quite depressing. His basic thesis is, sex has gotten so cheap. It used to be what it would cost you is building a relationship and then committing to spend the rest of my life with this person no matter what, and then we're finally in a position to have sex. And you know, he's not like back in the good old days, it was always this way, but it, it used to be more this way. And he says now sex is so cheap. It goes extensively into the prevalence of pornography and the view of sex presented in our culture. Honestly, it was quite depressing. A lot of the research that I was doing for this teaching. And there's a fair amount of it. Some of the best stuff I wanted to, to show, I just thought I can't, I can't put that up at CT. And my wife said, yeah, you can't put that up at CT. But here's, um, here's an interview he had with one respondent. He was saying, he was asking the guy, what does your girlfriend think of your porno habit? And he says, yeah, she knows I watch. That's why she hates touching my computer. Because if she like types anything, I have everything bookmarked and I, I guess in it, like it just comes up. She doesn't like to use my laptop, but what bothers her is not the porn, but the pictures I have of my ex-girlfriends naked and videos of them, of us. 
Like, that's the only porn that she just cannot stand and hates. And the Regnera says, well, how many of those do you have, those videos? And he says, well, you know, pretty much every girl, you know, every relationship I've been in, you know. And then he comments, Regnera says, there would have been an era in which this guy, Carlos, would have had trouble retaining the sexual interest of a woman. But that era is no more. One of his points is pornography is so widespread that women really can't hold out for a guy that's not into porn because the market is, is shrinking. They have to put up with it. He talks about Tinder. Here's what he says about that. He cites a Vanity Fair article which said this. It said, a few young women admitted to me that they use dating apps as a way to get free meals. I call it Tinder food stamps, one said. <laughs> That's got some shock value there, but I mean, think about what this is reducing sex to. It's trading one commodity for another. Um, think about the fragmentation. Was a life lived this way? If it's, if it's really true that the two become one, Think about the fragmentation of the soul that is happening. The expectations that are being set up, the backlog that is being accumulated. Regnerus, he's got another section called Into Porn and Off the Market. He says, the, the quality of porn may well have reached a level significant enough to satisfy most men. Such that the pursuit of real sex with real women, heretofore considered worth it, seems no longer a benefit worth the costs of wooing. Fake sex is closer to real sex than ever before. Yeah, I mean, a picture of a naked woman versus, you know, 50-inch HD sex happening, including live sex through the Internet you can pay for. Um, this is what we're up against. This is what we've done with sex, this beautiful thing God has given us. We've taken it and we've reduced it to this. And we see this in our literature. You know, Fifty Shades of Grey sold 100 million copies in two years. They keep making sequel after sequel for that movie. Um, quotes from that could not be printed at CT. Our music? You know, okay, so we're letting... We're letting Hollywood and the music industry inform us on what sex is supposed to be like. Hollywood and the music industry, known for having terrible marriages, these are the people we're looking to for our information. And also, oh yeah, and the makers of pornography as well. Those, that's, those are the big three who are letting set our expectations for, for sex and marriage. You think about m music lines from popular songs in race, recent years. You can't have my heart, but do what you want with my body. Is that possible under the biblical view that we're talking about here? For all we know, we might not get tomorrow. My church offers no absolutes, whatever we want. You can't deny that beast inside, very animalistic view. You know, there's a difference between human, human sexuality and animal sexuality. You're an animal baby, it's in your nature. Deep down, I know this never works, but you can lay with me so it doesn't hurt. 
sun is up, I'm a mess, got to get out now, got to run from this, here comes the shame. Running, drinking. Can't go home again. Need someone to numb the pain. Our baby-making bodies we just use for fun. I mean, this is, this is the poetry. These are the song lyrics. This is the, de- the view of sex that's being sung over and over again. You know, I'm not against listening to music, but I, what, what I'm against is just uncritically drinking it down. I think we need to see how many songs are about how miserable I am because of my love life. Why is that? It's because we're not doing sex according to the way God says. It's because we're doing something more like the, more of a Corinthian view of sex that believes there is no bond, this is nothing but pleasure. Contrast this with another song from Scripture, Song of Solomon. A song that Jewish boys were not allowed to read until they were a certain age. <laughs> song that was to be read between a husband and wife on their wedding night. My beloved is mine, and I am his. Very different. He browses among the lilies. Wink, wink. <laughs> And then she says, honey, until the day breaks and the shadows flee, be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the rugged hills. (laughs) Yeah, God, God created sex to be pleasurable. He's the one that, you know, designed things the way they are. He put all those nerve endings where he put them. You know, God wasn't like looking down from heaven being like, wait, what what are they doing? Uh, Oh, come on. Why do you think it feels the way it feels and works the way it works? And God is the one who created that pleasure. Well, he's not trying to keep us from it. He's trying to give you maximum sexual pleasure. God wants your sex life to be as good as possible. And that's why it's so sad to see us using sex in a way that's so far from the way he designed it. It's designed to be within the context of total commitment where my beloved is mine and I am his. The world's way just isn't working. I could hit you with stats for the next hour on this and we would be so depressed. I'm just going to hit you with a couple. This is a professor from California State University in the Journal of Sex Research. She writes, college students who had recently engaged in casual sex reported lower levels of self-esteem, life satisfaction, and happiness compared to those who had not had casual sex in the past 30 days. On the other hand, They had higher levels of general anxiety, social anxiety, and depression compared to college students who had not had recent casual sex. And both men and women report sexual regret, albeit for different reasons, following casual sex encounters. Sexual regret. Have you ever had that? What an awful feeling that is. Linda Waite, University of Chicago, The Case for Marriage. She says, married people have both more and better sex than singles do. They not only have sex more often, but they enjoy it more, both physically and emotionally, than do their unmarried counterparts. Yeah, it seems like a study like this will come out on MSN or whatever every every couple of months. 
and it'll be like, recent study shows married people have more and better sex. Everybody's like, whoa, that's weird. I wonder why that is. If sex is all about variety and novelty and youth and how you look, then why would married people be having better sex? But if it's about oneness and commitment and safety and vulnerability and intimacy, then it makes sense that married people would be having better sex just like this and, and every study done on this topic has ever shown. The point is the, the science matches the biblical worldview and we need to pay closer attention to it. What about cohabitation? This is the theory that you, know, you need to live with somebody for a while before marrying them. Well, studies on this always show the same thing. Individuals who cohabited with their spouses before marriage compared with individuals who did not reported more marital conflict, marital problems, and divorce proneness. Well, why would that be the case? You know, you wouldn't buy a car without test driving it. Why would you marry somebody without test driving that? Well, maybe because the biblical worldview is right. Our results indicate that cohabitation continued to be a risk factor for troubled marriages in 2000, despite the fact that more than 40% of all couples had lived together before marriage. The pattern of findings is consistent with the belief that something about the experience of cohabitation lowers subsequent marital quality. Yeah, you're basically trying to get as close as you possibly can to somebody while also keeping them far enough away that you can stay safe because the commitment isn't there. You know what marriage says is, no matter what, we're in this. Problems come up, we're going to work this out. The world's view says, what if problems come up? Don't you want to be free to leave? And what that does is it keeps you from getting what God really wanted you out of sex and marriage. And um, it's almost like you, it's a pr you're practicing being the closest you possibly can and keeping people at a distance. And it totally messes with you. I've had a lot of guys tell me, man, it's when we started having sex that my girlfriend just got really psycho on me. And it's like, well, dude, that's something you've created. This is not just her. This is reality is what's hitting here. What about their belief that God's grace means I can do whatever I want? Well, what that betrays is the belief that God is trying to keep me from doing something really fun, which is having sex with whoever I want to have sex with. That's what that lie shows. And notice what, what Paul doesn't say is, no, God's grace doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. No, he says... Yeah, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Yeah, I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. So what does he point out? He says, one of the big reasons to avoid sin is because sin is harmful. And it can be addictive. You get addicted to something that's really bad for you that gets in the way of what you really want, which is sexual satisfaction and closeness and a lifelong marriage. It underestimates the damage I can do to myself and others by becoming one and then tearing the bond back apart again. Not to mention the, ch the children that come from these unions and they're like, wow, I, I grew up without a dad. Glad my parents just really had the freedom to express themselves sexually. A lot of you, I don't need to tell you what that's like growing up with one parent. 
with a parent that was never around, dealing with divorce. But it's not just, you know, a lot of people suffer through this. It also underestimates the addictive nature of cheap thrills. Yeah, you get hooked on, you know, the variety, the, 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 the wrong view of sex. And then your current lover has to compete with your idealized good old days remembrance of all the other people you've been with, all the other sexual experiences that you've had, ones that were completely separated from the reality of a relationship, ones that they, they're so far from reality. And we wonder why we're, we're lonely and alone, why we're numb and we just need somebody else because I can't go home alone. Yeah, cheap thrills can be pretty addictive and they can directly get in the way of everything we want in life. So what I want to talk about is how to have the best sex possible. What God says about this. I'm going to give you five steps here. All right, this is not like one of, you know, the Cosmo articles you see in the, <laughs> in the grocery line. <laughs> Number one, start a relationship with God. Not usually in Cosmo. <laughs> Paul starts and ends this passage talking about God's grace. That's what the Corinthians needed to understand. Look what he says in verses 9 through 11. He says, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. A big long list of problems that currently characterize the Corinthian church. Sounds pretty depressing. Why is he bringing this up? Because he says, and that's what some of you were. That's what you used to be. But they're still doing those things, yeah. But that's inconsistent with who they are now. What happened? You were washed. And you were sanctified. You were set apart as special. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God is the only one who can wash you clean. God is the only one who can set you apart as special. God is the only one who can make you right. And what he says is when you come into a relationship with him, that at the deepest level, you are washed. You are cleansed. Nothing can take that away. I think one of the problems is these Corinthians, they were pretty hopeless. They're like, here I go again. I'm just this. I'm just a slut. I'm just, you know, somebody who uses people. And that despair, it's hard to resist sin when you view yourself that way. And what he says is, no, you have to get your eyes back on what God says about you. Because of Christ, because of the cross, you are no longer that way. That you, God says, you are my son, you are my daughter, and nothing will ever change that. And I love you. And you're clean forever. We have to get that cleansing through Christ. It's a free gift by His grace. 
We've got to view ourselves that way. That's how he ends the passage as well. He says, don't you know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, who you've received from God. God put his spirit in you. He joined you to his son. It says a few verses earlier, and then he put his spirit inside of you. You're going to these temples that hook up with priestess prostitutes. He says, you are a temple. And that hasn't changed. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. God valued you so much that he gave his son for you. He bought you. He says, I want that one. I want that one. And he purchased you, and you were so special to him. You were bought at the highest price he could have paid. And now he says, honor God with your bodies. Your body's been bought by God. Why don't we learn how to honor him with it, with his body? We've got to have this view. And you know, sexual damage, it's not some residue that needs washed off, no. It's often, it's a damage to our perspective. We start viewing others and ourselves a certain way, and those sexual experiences, they run so deep that they hammer home that perspective, that wrong perspective. But what God offers to do is he offers to change your perspective. He offers healing through his grace. We've got a whole fellowship full of people who have experienced healing. Number two, Start a relationship with God, then flee from cheap alternatives and save sex for biblical marriage. That's why he says in verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Sex needs to be saved for, for total commitment. You know, a saying that stuck with me as a young Christian was this, love can always wait to give, but lust can never wait to take. So the one person's like, oh, baby, I love you so much. I just got to have you right now. You can say, actually, that's lust. I lust you so much. <laughs> if sex is really joining myself to the other, if, if sex really is what the Bible says, why would I, how could that be good for me or the other person if I'm not committed to them? And some people are like, well, we're married in our hearts. You know, marriage is just a piece of paper. Well, okay. I had a guy tell me that, and I was like, well, why don't you just go get the piece of paper then? <laughs> he was like, um, well, you know, um, we're not financially ready yet. I'm like, marriage license is like 40 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have 40 bucks? <laughs> He's like, well... Honestly, I'm not sure. Wanted the freedom to set her aside. She was kind of annoying to him at times. He saw she'd gone kind of crazy since they got sexually involved. And uh, he just wasn't sure. Oftentimes, if you press this point, they'll admit, yeah, marriage is more than a piece of paper. I want to have the freedom to use, the, use your body and then move on to somebody else. Well... God says, marriage, we're completely and totally committed for the rest of our lives. And we're going to hang together no matter what. And including that means building an awesome sex life together. In fact, I tell people when we do premarital counseling, I say, look, the way to view your wedding night is not 
this has to be the most amazing sex we're ever gonna have. View it as this is the first step toward a lifetime of learning how to have sex with each other. And getting better each year. And I also say, with biblical marriage, my experience, a lot of other Christian couples I've talked to, every year of sex is better than the one before. And you're like, man, I can't believe we thought we were having awesome sex a couple years ago. And then a couple years from now, we'll probably be saying that again. That is a common experience. It's not, and not every Christian marriage is a good one, okay? But that is a common experience, and that's because of the Bible's view of sex, because the trust grows, the intimacy grows. Three, work on building relationships centered in God. Yeah, so here's, you know, a couple. They have each other. That's all they need. That in the sunset. <laughs> you know, a, a, a relationship where it's just me and, me and the other person, I tend to define myself by the other person. What do they think about me? How committed are they to me? Do they love me? Am I special to them? I'm dependent on the other person for my identity and my unmet relational needs. Consider a different picture of relationship, though. One where we both have a relationship with God, that that's the first relationship before we even know each other. And then, as we grow closer, I can define myself by who God says I am, not by who you say I am. My relational needs for closeness, that's met first by God, and so I don't have to have the other person at whatever cost. A lot of times that's why people lower their standards and compromises because I have to have this other person so much I will give them anything, including my dignity. Instead of having to take from the person, God gives to me, so I'm free to give. And the closer we grow to God, the closer we can grow to each other. It's really beautiful. It's a cord of three strands, as it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Fourth, related to this, learn what it means to love the whole person. You know, people, you know, you could sort of think of on, uh, three levels of relating. You know, you have the physical level, you have the personal level, and you have the spiritual level. And, you know, uh, the way a lot of people tend to, to do relationships, they start at the physical. You know, they've had sex by the first or second date. And then we're trying to get to know each other after that happens. And then, uh, you know, the notion of a spiritual relationship where we're praying together, where we're talking, where we're serving God together, where we're trying, I'm trying to help the other person along spiritually, um, that never really enters the picture. Because the truth is, the physical is the easiest. It's very easy. The personal, you know, talking, conversation, likes and dislikes, share time together, that's harder than physical. It can be done. The spiritual is even more difficult. And the problem is, if you start with the physical, everything tends to go down to the lowest denominator. You've already set this as the way we're relating, and so it becomes harder to build in at the other levels. Bad. That's a bad start to a, to a relationship that's going to have good sex. No, I need to work by starting, maybe start at the spiritual level, and maybe from there I'm moving on into the personal, and then finally, you know, there's some physical, 
And I think as the relationship grows, you know, the physical will grow. Of course, reserving a lot just for marriage. But, um, you know, this would be a good start to a relationship. And so we need to think about trying to model our relationships more along these lines. If I want to have the best sex possible, if sex is about unity and closeness, then I need to work on the other things and see how are we doing at the spiritual and the personal level. And then the physical is probably going to be just fine, okay? If you're doing well spiritually and personally with your significant other. Finally, Make sure that your sexual relationship is part of a larger relational network called the body of Christ. You know, the notion where all I need is my significant other. That's all we need. You know, all I need is my spouse. Um, that's not a recipe for good marriage. I can't tell you how much my marriage has benefited from always being in a network of other married couples, other singles, close friendships, people who have perspective on our marriage, people we can call in when we get stuck. Um, people who we can serve together. It gives, your, it gives your marriage purpose. It gives your marriage meaning. And it's not just all about how I'm making you feel and how you're making me feel. That's, putting too, that's hanging too much weight on the marriage. We need to be part of the body of Christ. And that's why all these passages on marriage in, in Scripture, in the New Testament, they're, they're targeted. They, have, they just assume it's in the context of a Christian community. And next week, we'll talk more about marriage. So I'm not going to say too much about that this week. Look, just to conclude here, just two thoughts. One, Jesus said that as the end approaches, most people's love will grow cold. And frankly, as I was studying this subject for this teaching, I was really feeling the weight of that, feeling a tremendous sorrow at what people are settling for, the hopelessness that so many seem to feel, how sex has been taken off of its lofty pedestal and brought down into the dirt. And you know, when uh, my wife and I, when we started uh, early in our dating relationship, I got her this necklace. It had a little diamond on it. It wasn't, it wasn't real expensive, but it was special to us because of its memory, the memories we had of that, the circumstances under which I gave it to her. And so, you know, you, you pretty much never saw it without that necklace on. Well, a couple years go by, we're married. One day she comes in and she's like, honey, I can't find the necklace. And we were like, <gasps> she's calling, the, you know, she goes back to the UDF where she got gas. She's calling the girls, is that down at your house? She's searching, you know, the parking lot where she was. We search and search for this thing, and finally we're just like, the necklace is gone. We're waiting, maybe they'll turn up a week later in the dryer or something. No. And so we're like, well, that's kind of sad, you know. It's, that's a bummer that we lost this necklace. We, we gave up on it. Well, nine months go by. You know, fall, winter, spring. And... Um, one of the girls who was coming over to our house, she pulled up out front and she looked down in the gutter in front of our house and she's like, what is that? She reaches down and she picks up the necklace. And she didn't know what it was. She walks inside, she goes, look what I found in the gutter. And my wife goes, 
Give me that necklace. <laughs> and you know, I mean, it had been there all winter. I mean, we'd parked our car on it God knows how many times. And, um, you know, covered by snow and leaves and debris. And, you know, it looked like it had been outside for nine months. But, you know, we took that. We took that down to the jeweler. They pulled the diamond out, got a new setting, got a new necklace. And uh, the thing looked as good as new. And... When I saw that necklace, I thought, we need to get that necklace out of that gutter and onto my wife's neck where it belongs. It needs to be restored to its place of honor. And I think that's, that's what I think of when I think about the state of sexuality, when I think about the state of sex. It's, it's like, it's been taken, it's, it's fallen off, it's fallen in the gutter, it's been rained on, it's been snowed on, you know, dogs are peeing on it. The, you know, the, the snow plows are pushing more snow on top of it. The car is running over. So many cars have run over that thing. But what God wants to do is he wants to go and he wants to pick it up out of the gutter. And he wants to give it a new setting. One that's been washed and sanctified and justified. And he wants to put that back up in the place of honor where it belongs. That's what God wants to do for you. He wants to restore. He wants to wash you. He wants to cleanse you. He gives you hope. And that's the other thing that I, I just feel so grateful for the victory and the hope that God brings. To be surrounded by so many successful marriages, to have a successful marriage myself, and to see how God heals me and other people from damage that should be irreversible. There should be no coming back from that. And God just says, such were some of you. But you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. You've been bought with a price. I paid a lot for you, God says. I love you. And now I want to teach you sex my way. 1 Corinthians 6. We should pray. Yeah, Lord, what a powerful thing you've given us. You didn't have to create sex, but you did. And um, I pray that in a world where there's a lot of darkness and a lot of people's love is growing cold, I pray that we would shine like lights in the darkness. I pray for anybody here who's feeling um, shame or feeling bad after hearing this stuff. I pray if they're not a Christian that they would come to you for that complete cleansing for that oneness with you and begin to build that relationship with you that will give them hope for future marriage. And I pray for those of us um, who have made mistakes, I pray that we can see ourselves the way you do. Thank you, God, that you love us and that you want to give us good things. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.